Disc 4 The People's Economy? The same cannot be said of some of Labour's other nationalisations. The first, that of the Bank of England, sounds dramatic, but had almost no real impact. Exactly the same men stayed in charge, following just the same policies. Nationalisation of the gas and electricity industries, themselves already part-owned by local authorities as well as many small private companies, caused few ripples. Labour had talked about nationalising the rail system from 1908, almost from the moment it became a party. The railway system had been rationalised long before the war into four major companies, London and North Eastern, Great Western Railway, Southern Railways and London, Midland and Scottish. By the mid-forties, there was almost no real competition left in the system, and periodic grants of public money had been needed for years to help the struggling companies out. The distance between rationalised and nationalised is longer than a single letter, of course, but since the government had taken direct control of the railways from the beginning of the war, it was an easy letter to replace. This did not produce a transport system of delight. Labour had the ultimate fat controller world view. It wanted everything from lorries and ships to trains and barges under one giant thumb. The new British Rail would be only one part of an empire comprising the London Underground, canals slicing through the England of the Industrial Revolution, the grimy trucks of thousands of road haulage companies, the major ports and harbours, and even travel agents and hotels. All this came under a single British Transport Commission. For the railway system, which had been the glory of the country, this meant a subsidiary position, answering to a new railway executive and his regional managers who would oversee the 632,000 staff, 20,000 steam locomotives and more than 4,000 electric commuter trains in the country. Among the stock were battered, rackety, gas-lit carriages from the days of Queen Victoria and 7,000 horses used to pull rolling stock around shunting yards. The post-war train system was more powerful than the pre-motorway road network, but it was now in dreadful condition, and, because of the economic crisis and the shortage of steel, it would be starved of new investment. Unpainted bridges and dripping tunnels nearly a century old, creaking and failing signalling systems, clapped-out locomotives, rusted and broken lines, the lack of electrification and cold, uncomfortable carriages. None of that was the fault of nationalisation. But nationalisation without new investment was no answer to it either. The only people who did well out of rail nationalisation were the original shareholders of the railway companies who were, to their surprise, rather well compensated. In the 40s, coal and steel stirred up more emotion even than transport. Coal provided nine-tenths of Britain's energy. Its smoke and smell hung heavily over every town and city. When the coal industry fell behind its quotas, or was interrupted by bad weather, the factories closed and the people shivered. Coal was also central to Labour's story. The 1926 general strike had begun and ended with the miners, and hard-faced colliery owners were the group most despised by Labour MPs. Coal was red-hot. The ambitious young Harold Wilson, looking for a way to make a mark, wrote a book about how to modernise the industry. Socialist writers such as Priestley and Orwell used the awful conditions of the miners to rub readers' noses in what was wrong with Britain. So, for Labour MPs, nationalising the coal industry was what they were in politics for, as well as sweet revenge. The job was given to one of the government's older and more ideological members. Manny Shinwell had been a tailor's boy in London's East End before moving to Glasgow and emerging as a moving force on Red Clydeside. He was a stirring speaker and veteran MP, but when handed the task of nationalising coal and electricity, he found there were almost no plans or blueprint to help him. All anyone could dredge up was a single Labour pamphlet written in Welsh. Chinwell managed the job by the due day, the 1st of January, 1947, but his timing was catastrophic. As we have seen, it was just then that the freezing weather stopped coal being moved and the power stations began to fail. You can hardly blame socialism for snow, but, along with the food minister, John Strachey, Shinwell became a demonised figure for promising that there would be no power cuts. Shiver with Shinwell and starve with Strachey, said the papers. 
More important in the long term was the lack of planning about how to modernize the industry that kept Britain working, warm and fed. Many mines operated under Victorian conditions by families which had owned them for decades simply needed to be closed. In other parts of the coalfield, new mines needed to be sunk, for by 1947 Britain was producing a lot less coal than before the war. Modern cutting and winding gear was desperately required everywhere. So was a better relationship between managers and miners to end the history of mistrust and strikes. The miners got new contracts and a five-day week, but the first major strike spread within months of nationalisation. On inauguration day, signs had gone up outside most collieries, proudly announcing that they were now managed by the National Coal Board on behalf of the people. In some cases, people were scored out and miners written in. Over time, relations between local managers, most of them from the pre-nationalisation era, and the miners, did improve a little. Over time, investment did come in, and the worst pits were shut down. But the naive idea that simply taking an industry into public ownership would improve it had been punctured early. What matters is the quality of the managers. The historian Corelli Barnett was unkind, not unfair, to complain that Whitehall chose for the nationalised boards administrators of their own kidney, sound chaps unlikely to rock boats, rather than innovative leaders strong in will and personality. Cole was under Viscount Hindley, a 63-year-old marketing man from the industry. An Etonian ran the gas boards, and transport was overseen by Sir Cyril Herkham from the Ministry of War Transport, a man whose entrepreneurial experience and knowledge of engineering were nil. The political symbolism of taking over great industries on behalf of the people was striking, but as politicians discover anew every few years, talking about change and actually imposing it are very different things. By the time the last big struggle to nationalise an industry was underway, the steel debates of 1948-9, the public mood was already turning. Labour did nationalise the iron and steel industry, which differed from coal and rail in being potentially highly profitable and having good labour relations. But it did so with a nervousness that showed the government felt a change in the weather. Labour had worked itself up, proclaiming that the battle for steel is the supreme test of political democracy, a test which the whole world will be watching. Yet the cabinet agonised and went ahead only because of a feeling that otherwise they would be accused of losing their nerve. In the debates in the Commons, bright young Labour backbenchers rebelled. The steel owners were organised and vigorous. Labour had a torrid time, and the Tories seemed to be regaining their spirits. An overexcited Cripps told the Commons, If we cannot get nationalisation of steel by legal means, we must resort to violent methods. They did get it, but the industry was little shaken. Steel needed new investment almost as much as the coal mines and railways did. New mills, coke ovens, new melting furnaces. Again, though, nationalisation helped not at all. Within just a few years more, it was largely returned to private ownership. Nationalisation would give Britain a kind of modernisation, but a thin, underfunded and weak variety. Nothing like the second industrial revolution its planners hoped for. Reversing it would give Margaret Thatcher some of her greatest victories, in the programme of privatisation that followed some forty years after Attlee's government. The coal industry would virtually disappear after catastrophic strikes. The railways under BR would become a national joke, but then fall further after a botched privatisation. The whole notion of state planning would fall from fashion. Squatters and Prefabs the first stories began to appear in newspapers in July 1946. Out of the blue, fed up with having nowhere decent to live, around 48 families had marched into disused army camps at Scunthorpe. Then it happened again, in Middlesbrough, when 30 families moved into a camp. Homeless people in Salisbury took over 30 huts there. At Seaham Harbour, just up the coast from Newcastle, eight miners and their families chalked their names on empty huts and began unrolling bedding. Then squatting began in Doncaster. In picturesque Chalfont St Giles in Buckinghamshire, a hundred families declared themselves the Vash Park Estate Committee and took over a military base. They elected a Mr Glasspool as chairman, who declared in best Ealing comedy mode, By sticking together we can do it. 
If the local authorities try to move us out, they will have a bit of a job now. Through August, the squatting gathered pace. Ashton, Jarrow, Liverpool, Fraserburgh in Aberdeenshire, Llantwit Major, one of the oldest towns in Wales. In Bath, an RAF aerodrome was seized. At Ramsgate, miners and their families took over gun emplacements. Families marched into an unoccupied Cardiff nurse's home. A London bus conductor and his family occupied an empty nursery in Bexley Heath. Some 500 people took over camps outside Londonderry. A Sheffield anti-aircraft battery was taken over. Most of the invasions were peaceful, but the squatters were determined. At Tumpsley Brickworks Army Camp outside Hereford, where German prisoners had been housed, the Times reported that a British corporal refused them admission, but he was overpowered, the gates were forced, and a party of about twenty men and a number of women entered the camp. They found ten empty huts, which were promptly allocated. Six couples moved into a Royal Artillery camp in Croydon. At Slough, where thirty-two empty Nissen huts stood in the football stadium, squatters waited until the guards were distracted and infiltrated through hedges. Birmingham people took over flats. By early autumn, it was estimated that 45,000 people had illegally taken over empty huts, flats or other shelters. It was only then, however, that the spreading revolt really hit the headlines. On the wet Sunday afternoon of the 8th of September, about a thousand people began to converge on Kensington High Street in London. They were mainly young married couples with children, including babies. Most carried suitcases. Taxis piled with bedding and the odd furniture van joined them. A carefully choreographed operation, it was organised by London Communist Party officials, such as Tubby Rosen of Stepney and Ted Bramley, the party's London boss. They had been identifying and marking up empty properties in the capital. A reporter from the Times takes up the story. Those who could not find accommodation stood patiently in the rain while the scouting parties were sent out to inspect neighbouring property. Consultations were held under lamp posts in the rain, and there appeared to be an elaborate system of communications by messengers. Around town, properties were duly taken over. Lord Ilchester's former London home, and Abbey Lodge in Regent's Park, a building just round the corner from Buckingham Palace, and flats in Weymouth Street, Marylebone, Upper Fillimore Gardens, and further afield in Ealing and Pimlico. The authorities' initial reaction was superbly British. The Women's Voluntary Service, WVS, brought hot drinks, and the police, rather than trying to evict the families, supplied tea and coffee from Kensington Barracks. The press was sympathetic, and so, it seemed, was much of the public. As the squatting continued, crowds gathered outside and formed human chains to pass food and drink through windows. In some streets, the police picked up the food parcels and brought them to the squatters themselves. Blankets, money, food, chocolates and cigarettes were collected for the families. Students from London University marched through the streets with banners declaring Homes for Everybody before Luxury for the Rich. Some squatted properties soon had too much food to cope with. But as the rebellion went on, the official mood hardened. Electricity supplies were cut to some of the seized properties, local authorities were warned not to help them, and mounted police were used to disperse sympathetic crowds. Squatters in Buckingham Palace Road wrote to the King to protest. A deputation went to Number 10, but was met by the Prime Minister's housekeeper, who told them Attlee was too busy to see them. The Cabinet had decided the revolt had to be stopped. Nye Bevan, in charge of housing, announced that this was now a confrontation to defend social justice and led the government response against organised lawlessness. The communist leader, Harry Pollitt, retorted that if the government wants reprisals, they will get them. The working class is in fighting mood. In the end, the squatting revolt fizzled out and the communists led the retreat. The clinching argument seems to have been a threat that people who squatted would lose their position in the queue for new council homes. Housing was the most critical single post-war issue, and would remain near the top of the national agenda through the early fifties. Half a million homes had been destroyed or made uninhabitable by German air raids, a further three million badly damaged, and overall a quarter of Britain's 12.5 million homes were damaged in some way. London was the biggest single example. Films of the post-war years, such as the Ealing comedies Hue and Cry and Passport to Pimlico, 
show vividly a capital background of wrecked streets, a cityscape of ruins inhabited by feral urchins. But the problem was nationwide. Southampton lost so many buildings that during the war officials reported that the population felt the city was finished and broken in spirit. Coventry lost a third of her houses in a single night. Over two nights, the shipbuilding town of Clydebank, which had 12,000 houses, was left with just seven undamaged. Birmingham had lost 12,000 homes completely, with another 25,000 badly damaged. By the time people began to pour out of the armed forces to marry or return to their families, the government reckoned that 750,000 new houses were needed quickly. This was far more than a country short of steel, wood and skilled labour could possibly manage, at least by ordinary building. Worse, though there had been slum clearances, the old industrial cities, including London, as well as Glasgow, Manchester, Liverpool and Newcastle, still contained hideous slums, blackened grimy terraces, lacking proper sanitation, and in some cases lacking any gas or electric power supply too. This was about a lot more than bricks and mortar. The war had separated husbands and wives, deprived children of their parents, and in general shaken the family fabric of the country. Some 38 million civilians had changed address, a total of 60 million times. Many marriages had broken up under the strain of the war, yet people wanted a return to the warmth and security family life can offer. There were more than 400,000 weddings in 1947, and 881,000 babies born, the beginning of the boom that would reshape British life in the decades ahead. With both marriages and births, these were really big increases on the pre-war years, a million extra children in the five years after the war. There were not nearly enough individual homes to go round, so hundreds of thousands of people found themselves living with their in-laws, deprived of privacy and locked in intergenerational rows. It was, admittedly, a time when people were prepared to live more communally, more elbow to elbow, than they would be later. Wartime queuing had revived a kind of street culture, as women spent hour upon hour standing together, inching forward, sharing their grumbles as they waited for the shutters to snap up. Cinemas and dance halls were crammed with people, trying to escape the cold and monotony of their homes. Without television or central heating, and severely short of lighting, people were in it together. It was the least private time of all. With wartime requisitioning, evacuation and the direction of labour, many were lodging in unfamiliar rooms. So the sharing of toilets and squeezing past each other in small kitchens that so many new families had to put up with in the late forties was not a shock. It was just a disappointment, like the dreary and meagre food and the ugly, threadbare clothing. Some believe the popularity of the mother-in-law joke in British variety and television comedy well into the seventies was forged in the cramped family homes of the immediate post-war period. Public support for the squatters was perhaps not so surprising. What could ministers do? The most dramatic response was factory-made instant housing, the prefabs. They were designed for a few years' use, though a few of them were still being lived in sixty years later. Between 1945 and 1949, under the temporary housing programme, a total of 156,623 prefabs went up, far fewer than the total of new homes needed, but a welcome start. They were a lot more than mere huts. The prototype, Portal Bungalow, shown outside the Tate Gallery and in Edinburgh in 1944, came with a cooker, sink, fridge, bath, boiler and fitted cupboards too. Though at £550 it cost fractionally more than a traditional brick-built terraced house, it used a fraction of the resources. It weighed, for example, just under two tonnes, as compared to about 125 tonnes for a brick house. The houses were typically built in hastily converted aircraft factories. The Bristol Aeroplane Company made many, and then loaded onto lorries, with bags of numbered screws, pipes and other fittings. When they arrived at cleared sites, ready painted, they would be unloaded and screwed together on a concrete plinth, often by German or Italian prisoners of war. Within a couple of days, they could be ready for moving into. The thirteen designs, 
such as archons, spooners, and phoenixes, had subtly different features. Some had larger windows, some had porches, some had curved roofs, some looked almost rustic, but they were all weatherproof, warm, and well lit. People did complain about rabbit hutches or tin boxes, but for many they were hugely welcome. The future Labour leader Neil Kinnock lived in one, an Archon Five from 1947 until 1961, and remembered the fitted fridge and bathroom causing much jealousy. Friends and family came to view the wonders. It seemed like living in a spaceship. As they spread around the country, in almost all the big cities and many smaller ones too, they came to be regarded as better than bog-standard council housing. Communities developed in prefab estates, which survived cheerfully well into the seventies. Dirty stubs to rich spikes. The great grey stubs of the tower block boom, which ran from the fifties to the late sixties, litter most of urban Britain. Never has newness turned dark so quickly. Rarely has revolutionary optimism been so quickly and abjectly confounded. This revolution was born, like others, on the European continent and imported to Britain a generation after the prophets of concrete modernism had spoken. Mies van der Rohe, Le Corbusier, Auguste Perret, and Walter Gropius were idealists of the twenties and thirties who dreamed a new world of light, tall, glass-covered buildings springing up to free humanity. This was about more than architecture. It was to be social revolution, accomplished with concrete and prefabricated steel, bringing hygiene and sunlight to the masses who had lived and worked in the dark, grimy, and above all messy streets of industrial Europe. With the arrival of the Nazis, many of the idealists fled, particularly to the United States, where their towers would glorify not socialism but American capitalism in its age of triumph. Some, however, came to Britain. Bertolt Lubetkin designed beautiful white modernist structures for London, early multi-story concrete flats, a famous health centre, and the Penguin Pool and Gorilla House at London Zoo. Erno Goldfinger, on the other hand, went for vast towers to house human gorillas and managed to offend Ian Fleming sufficiently to be used as a Bond villain's name. In other circumstances, avant-garde artists from Germany, Russia, France, and Switzerland might have had limited impact in Britain, a country whose architecture had seesawed between classicism and revivalism, and where the prefix "mock" was not a term of mockery. But from the end of the Second World War through to the seventies, the shortage and foul quality of much older working-class housing meant a desperation for speed and shortcuts. Scotland alone had four hundred thousand homes without indoor toilets in the mid-fifties. Glasgow's slums were so bad they had been formally denounced by the Roman Catholic Church as inhuman. The great industrial cities of the Midlands and the north of England were in almost as bad a way. Politician after politician promised more new houses, ever faster. Britain would end up building a higher proportion of state-subsidized houses than almost. Any comparable country, beating in fact most of the communist-run countries of Eastern Europe, the idealist architects offered scale and speed, huge streets in the sky thrown up fast. The local bosses of British cities seized these foreign dreams with both hands. There is a photograph from the late fifties and sixties, endlessly reproduced. Actually, it is many photographs taken in different cities at different times, but they all show the same thing. Eager, powerful men in suits, staring down or pointing at a small-scale model with cardboard blocks set across it. The architectural visionaries and the scores of ambitious, modern-thinking British architects who worshipped them drew their towers set against rolling fields surrounded by trees on sunny spring days. In Britain's cities, the municipal bosses were generally hostile to decanting populations out beyond their borders to entirely new settlements where they might have more space. People would want to stay in their own communities, they reasoned. Also, they wanted to keep the tax base and the votes. So instead, the towers tended to go up right in the middle of towns, on waste ground, or where old Victorian terraces had just been bulldozed. From 1958, councils got a central government subsidy for every layer over five stories—a straightforward bribe to build up, not out. The new towers, which were only ever a minority of the total new housing, offered working-class families real benefits, though: fitted kitchens, 
underfloor heating, proper bathrooms, enough space for children to be able to stop sharing beds. The more ambitious and refined tower block plans rarely got built. Shortage of money and haste, plus a lot of local corruption, favoured quick build thrown up by local companies. Once, the different regions, counties and countries of Britain had boasted their own architectural traditions. Glasgow had her red sandstone tenements, London her ornate dark crimson brick apartments, Manchester her back-to-backs. Now, under the influence of a single modern aesthetic, identical-looking towers appeared, often bought off the peg from builders. The architect Shepherd Fiddler recalled a boozy day out with Birmingham's Labour boss, the Little Caesar Harry Watton, when they went to inspect a prototype tower block by the builder Bryant. It gives a flavour of the time. In order to get to the block, we passed through a marquee, which was rolling in whisky, brandy, and so on, so by the time they got to the block, they thought it was marvellous. As we were leaving, at the exit, Harry Watton suddenly said, Right, we'll take five blocks, just as if he was buying bags of sweets. We'll have five of them, and stick them on X, some site he'd remembered. Watton was a right-wing, anti-immigrant, pro-hanging Labour boss not Lord Mayor, but Chairman of the Key Committee in Birmingham. He was not corrupt, but he was autocratic and self-righteous. There were Wattons everywhere. Some, like Newcastle's T. Dan Smith, working with the massive architectural practice Paulsons, were corrupt. Others, like the puritanical socialist Bailey David Gibson of Glasgow, were certainly not. One of Gibson's colleagues remembered him as frightening, white-faced, intense, driving idealist, absolutely fanatical and sincere, he saw only one thing, as far as we could see, how to get as many houses up as possible, how to get as many of his beloved fellow working-class citizens decently housed as possible. Scotland and the north of England saw the most dramatic examples of the prefabricated mania. On the outskirts of Dundee, under the city's controversial Bailey, J.L. Stewart, more new housing was thrown up per head than anywhere in Europe, including the vast hexagonal nightmare of the Whitfield estate, built by Cruden's. Under Gibson, in Glasgow, the huge 31-storey red road flats went up, the tallest in Europe, at an astonishing speed. As time went on, lessons were learned, and more dispersed, varied and decorated concrete developments appeared. Newcastle had a late example, the giant wriggle of the biker wall, as if the Emperor Hadrian had turned residential developer. Mostly, though, the stubby blocks were much the same everywhere. West Ham or Kidderminster, Blackburn or Edinburgh, who could tell? And everywhere the same problems quickly began to crop up. Dispersed local communities did not easily reform when stuck vertically in the air. The entrance halls and lifts, so elegantly displayed in architects' watercolours, were vandalised and colonised by the young and the bored. Asbestos, it was discovered too late, was dangerous. Hideous condensation problems appeared. Walls were too thin for decent privacy. Shops were too far away. In many cases, blocks were popular and well-run in the early days, when people were proud of their new homes. The deterioration was human as well as concrete. A single drunken fighting family could spread misery throughout many floors of a block. Two or three could wreck it. Councils who simply crowded tenants in, without considering problems such as those caused by having large numbers of children high up in the blocks, were at least as much to blame as Le Corbusier or Mies van der Rohe. It is true that some of the prefabricated, hurriedly flung-up blocks were dangerous. In May 1968, part of the Ronan Point Tower Block in East London, built with concrete panels, simply collapsed. Since the four deaths then, nobody else has been killed by a collapsing tower block, and the craze to condemn them as inherently unstable matches the original craze to throw them up everywhere. Just as the slimy brick slums of the 40s and 50s were blamed for producing hooliganism, so the new vertical slums were blamed for the vandalism of the 60s and 70s, even though some were being vandalised well before they were finished and open. Perhaps the bleakly uncompromising shadows they cast did have a demoralising effect. You would have to be a very naive, rimless-glassed modernist to love those dully repetitive lines. Opinion began to turn against the towers, even among architects. Smaller-scale projects came into fashion during the 70s, except in a few isolated and well-managed cities such as Aberdeen. Tower blocks began to be blown up. 
Rochester destroyed all of its blocks to improve the look of the town. Later, Birmingham promised to do the same. Even Glasgow's red road flats were being discussed for demolition. In other places, such as Wandsworth in London, the blocks were repackaged, covered with brightly coloured panels, and given a more decorative silhouette. Left-wing councils, which in the 60s had championed the blocks, began to champion cottage-style housing instead. Council house sales meant blocks in the most favoured areas began to be improved from the inside by their new owners. Many were sold to housing associations. Others were left to house asylum seekers, drug addicts, and the most desperate of the poor. Through her history, Britain has seen many building crazes, most notably the vast sprawl of brick terraces during the Industrial Revolution, and then the ribbon-developed suburbia of the interwar years. Yet not even they have marked so much of the look of Britain as quickly and nastily as the Tower Block Revolution. The concrete jungles have become the most easily despised, most universally rejected aspect of the British experiment in modern living. So it is worth remembering that some survived with contented tenants. It is worth recalling that even some graffiti-stained tower blocks, if they have heating, hot water, and working lifts, may be better places to live than the leaking, rat-infested terraces with outside toilets and small gas fires that they replaced. We can add to the small credit side that had Birmingham, Glasgow, Manchester, and London not built high, then much less of the countryside within fifty miles of these cities and others would exist today. The new homes had to go somewhere. Tower blocks were said to be good because they prevented sprawl, the very shabby Tudor ugliness deplored in the thirties, and some sprawl certainly was stopped. Today it seems we are wiser. Architects are as keen on high density as ever, but now want to devise street patterns, squares, and low-rise homes on a human scale. By the early eighties, Britain's housing shortage was, in general terms, solved by the concrete boom. Some four hundred and forty thousand homes were created in tower blocks alone. But migration and the breakup of families since then have created a new housing crisis, and once again, skyscrapers are coming back in fashion. They are different now. From Manchester's new forty-seven-story Beetham Tower, with its queasy-making overhang, to plans for a sixty-six-story shard-shaped London Bridge Tower, these are chic palaces for the urban rich, not up-ended slums. They are as close to Harry Watton's off-the-peg blocks as the drug habits of supermodels are to the ravages of heroin in prison. Architecture matters, but it does not matter as much as class. Rebellion. No to snook. Back in the forties, Labour's idea of Britain was beginning to take shape. This would be a well-disciplined, austere country, organised from London by dedicated public servants, who in turn directed a citizenry which was dignified and restrained. Sanitation, reason, officialdom, and fairness—it was a round-head vision, without the compulsory psalms and military dictatorship. Unfortunately for Labour, the real country was nothing like this. It was and is a more disordered, self-pleasuring, individualistic place. Labour's ethic was about restraint and fair shares. Ministers viewed consumerism with disdain, a personality defect of Americans. Yet consumerism would soon erupt with a strength never known before. People were pleased with the free spectacles and the more generous insurance arrangements, and they took to the prefabricated houses and accepted Indian and Pakistani independence without much problem. It was just that they loathed the restrictions, the queues, and the shortages, and disliked being lectured about Dunkirk seven or eight years later. And so the British did what they always do in their way. They rebelled. They did this not in the French fashion, violently with flying cobblestones and wild manifestos, but quietly and stubbornly. As we have seen, they rebelled over housing shortages. They refused to wear the clothes they were told they should, and they would not eat what was put in front of them either. Diaries and letters of the time show a country utterly obsessed by food. There had been a general assumption that as soon as the war was over, pre-war variety and spice would return to the shops. Instead, rations were cut, and the disappointment was bitter. One response was the rise in popularity of that wartime character, the spiv. 
The later BBC television comedy Dad's Army featured in the fictitious platoon one Joe Walker, played by James Beck, who was even wilder than his character and died at 44 from alcohol poisoning. Walker is a double-breasted, suit-wearing, pencil-moustached, perky villain with a heart of gold, forever upending the moral pretensions of his betters by slipping them an illicit bottle of whisky, a carton of cigarettes, or a pair of stockings for the missus. Walker is the service economy in guerrilla form. He is a criminal, but one whom everyone relies on. After the war, the real-life spivs, the traders and dealers on street corners or in cafes, came out of the shadows and became a recognised part of life under labour. Moral confusion about people taking the law into their own hands features in two of the hugely popular Ealing comedies, both first shown in 1949. In Passport to Pimlico, the citizens of an area around a bomb site find out they legally belong not to the United Kingdom, but to the Duchy of Burgundy. As Burgundians, they are free from the rationing and petty restrictions hemming in other Londoners. Almost as soon as they have finished celebrating their freedom, they are swamped by a plague of spivs, jostling, threatening and causing a breakdown of law and order. They represent the suppressed greed and wild consumerism that socialists feared was always present under the surface, as indeed it was. When the British state responds by cutting off Pimlico with barbed wire, the Burgundians hold out in a comic mimicry of the country's stand in 1940. The people of London take their side and throw them food to keep the Burgundians from having to surrender. It seems clear that this was directly copied from scenes in the real-life squatting revolt 18 months earlier. In a comic conclusion, the tensions are resolved, just as in a Shakespeare comedy. The rebels reach an amicable agreement with the authorities and return to the ration-card Britain, where everything is fair and ordered, if somewhat frustrating. Whiskey galore, shown a few months after Passport to Pimlico, comes down on the other side of the argument. It relates what happens when a cargo ship full of whisky, tellingly called the SS Politician, runs aground off the Hebridean island of Todde. The story is fictional, taken from a comic novel, but was based on real wartime events. The actual ship was called the SS Cabinet Minister. The islanders, like the rest of Britain, are whisky-starved and opportunistic. The film tells the story of how the island community steals and hides huge quantities of whisky, which had been intended for North America, foiling the authorities in the shape of the English Home Guard commander, Captain Waggett, played by Basil Radford, a precursor to Arthur Lowe in Dad's Army. In the film, the puritanical British state is subverted by a tightly knit and determined island community who end up with a great dance of celebration and liberation. In today, unlike Pimlico, the people's yearning for good things triumphs. In real life, the rather heroic struggle of a lone excise man to recover the whisky divided the islanders, led to convictions for theft, and produced a poisoned atmosphere between families, which lasted for many years. The fantasy, however, is remembered and the truth forgotten. One can see the tension between the Burgundians returning to Russian books and the islanders of Todde beating the authorities to keep the stolen whisky as a filmic version of the political tension between wartime-style controls championed by the Labour government and the frustrated hostility exemplified by pro-free market Tories. Eventually, the controls would be partly dismantled, rationing would end and the first great consumer boon would begin more or less in parallel with Labour's loss of power in 1950-51. to 51. In the meantime, however, a surprising degree of petty criminality was tolerated in an otherwise law-abiding country, not just on the part of spivs, but the shopkeepers bending rules to help old customers, or the people who filched a little from work, or the ordinary men in pubs who would buy an extra pair of stockings for their wives. This criminality, however, would not have existed without the privations of the time, and the impertinence of officialdom. A novelist looking back a decade later caught the mood. Ludicrous penalties were imposed on farmers who had not kept strictly to the letter of licenses to slaughter pigs. In one case, the permitted building was used, the authorised butcher was employed, but the job had to be done the day before it was permitted. In another case, the butcher and the timing coincided, but the pig met its end in the wrong building. Never had a bureaucracy so flaunted its total failure to comprehend the spirit of the times, which was low and resentful. So, really, almost everyone participated. It was a sort of pale, hang-dog spivery in back kitchens and the rear of shops. 
there were other ways of rebelling. The British Housewives League, formed in 1945 by a clergyman's wife to campaign against rude shopkeepers and the amount of time spent queuing, helped remove the hapless food minister Ben Smith over the withdrawal of powdered egg. Other foods brought into the country and foisted on consumers were regarded as disgusting. Horses were butchered and sold, sometimes merely as steak. Whale meat was bought from South Africa, both in huge slabs and in tins, described as rich and tasty, just like beef steak. It was relatively popular for a short while, but not long. Magnus Pike, later a popular television scientist, explained that though it tasted fine to the first bite of a drooling mouth, as you went on biting, the taste of steak was quickly overcome by a strong flavour of cod liver oil. Then there was Snook, a ferocious tropical fish supposed to be able to hiss like a snake and bark like a dog. One of the older vignettes of wartime Britain has the young Barbara Castle, then Betts, working for the fish division of the Ministry of Food. She was quartered in a grand London hotel, the Carlton, which boasted large bathrooms and generously sized baths. These were filled with fish, to be observed for experimental purposes. Barbara Castle, in short, lived with a snook. Her report on its behaviour must have been favourable, because in October 1947 the government began to buy millions of tins of snook from South Africa. Protein was in short supply. South Africa would take pounds, not the scarce dollars. So, ministers tried to persuade the British that in salads, pasties, sandwiches, or even as snook piquant, with spring onions, vinegar and syrup, the powdery, bland fish was really quite tasty. The country begged to differ and mocked it mercilessly, buying very little. Snook became a great joke in the newspapers and in Parliament. Eventually, it was withdrawn and sold off for almost nothing as cat food. The Conservatives would later put out pamphlets showing pictures of a horse, a whale and a reindeer to show the wide choice of food you have under the Socialists. Labour tried hard to keep the country decently fed during a grim few years, when much of the world was at least as hungry. But between the black market organised by the Spivs, which spread very widely across Britain in the 40s, the British Housewives League, whose rhetoric would be remembered by a young Conservative student called Margaret Thatcher, and the spontaneous boycott of Snook, the public showed that it was fed up to the back teeth with rationing. Fair or not, as soon as they could, Labour, from 1948 and then Tory ministers, began to remove the restrictions and restore something like a market in food. American aid began to flow again, and spiritually the mildly anarchic island of Todday trumped Goody Pimlico. Rebellion. A bit of skirt. It took a long time for British clothes to brighten up. Well into the 60s, children were still wearing the baggy grey shorts and unravelling homemade jumpers of the 40s. Men were still dressing in heavily built grey suits for social occasions, wearing macks and hats on their days out, and women were in housecoats and hairnets. But the 40s did see one celebrated revolution, which showed just how frustrated women had become at the dowdy, dreary life they had suffered. It began in Paris with the arrival of a new fashion house, created by a young designer who was in love with the Belle Epoque France of his childhood, the pre-First World War country of swirling skirts, elegance and luxury. His name was Christian Dior, and his revolution was christened The New Look. One of the British women who attended the unveiling in 1947 said she heard for the first time in her life the sound of a petticoat, and realised that at long last the war was really over. Dior's revolution was a return to billowing, deliberately unpractical skirts and dresses, what the magazine Harper's Bazaar described as a slight, slender bodice narrowing into a tiny wasp waist, below which the skirt bursts into fullness like a flower. Every line is rounded. The long skirts and padded bosoms, the pleats and extravagance, burst like a firework display over a British womanhood described later as in a grey state, weary, dispirited, cramped and cross. It was a direct challenge to the austerity culture of the government and quickly caused a genuine political battle. The British Guild of Creative Designers complained that they did not have the materials and could not give way to French irresponsibility. Labour MPs busily threw themselves into the fight against frippery. 
the beefy and redoubtable Mrs. Bessie Braddock denounced the new look as the ridiculous whim of idle people. Mabel Rydal, MP, said it was being foisted on women and promised that housewives would not buy it. All this padding and artificiality was bad because it made for over-sexiness, she added. The new look was turning women into caged birds and removing their new freedom. Yet, from the young princesses of the royal family downwards, women were ignoring the political orders and doing everything they could to alter, buy or borrow for the Dior look. Ruth Adam, who worked in the Ministry of Information during the war and later became a novelist, argued that a generation of girls who had been ordered to work in factories on pain of prison if they refused did not see it as a liberation. To them, Labour MPs who lectured them about wearing sensible clothing suitable for productive work were the same breed as the women officers who had routed them out of doorways where they were having a good-night kiss and sent them back to camp and as the forewoman who had shouted at them for spending too long in the ladies while Russia was waiting for aeroplane parts. Now they did not have to listen to lectures about hard work and freedom any more, but could think about being feminine and glamorous. There was a pent-up yearning for the better, more colourful life that middle-class people, at least, could remember from before the war. Everyone from their twenties onwards would have had a reasonably vivid recollection of mid-thirties consumerism. In a world in which men and women were still wearing roughly fitted and standardised de-mob suits, handed out with hats, ties and shoes as you left the forces, clothing was a powerful symbol of prosperity postponed. Nobbly Knees and Other Fun In and out of their homes, what were the British of the forties doing for fun? They were certainly not watching television, something owned by less than 0.2% of the adult population in 1947 and by only 4% in 1950. They were not travelling abroad for their holidays. For one thing, people had less time on holiday and less money to spend, too. The Holidays with Pay Act, passed shortly before the war, had hugely expanded the number of people with guaranteed paid holidays, but a fortnight was more common than a month. In 1947, in the days before jet travel, and with the amount of money one could take severely restricted, just over 3% of people holidayed abroad, the vast majority being wealthy and going no further afield than the Mediterranean or northern France. They did not drive around the British countryside either, or go motoring in the pre-war phrase. Petrol rationing had seen to that. But in that same year, slightly over half the British did take some kind of holiday. Many took the train to one of the traditional Victorian-era seaside resorts, which were soon bursting with customers. Others went for cycling and camping holidays. The roads were by modern standards almost empty of traffic. Yet more would take the charabang or train to one of the new holiday camps run by such early entrepreneurs of leisure as Billy Butlin. The South African-born Butlin had come from a broken family and, on his mother's side, fairground barkers. She gave him his first taste of the showman's life with her gingerbread store, which she took around West Country market towns. After a much interrupted education and a short spell as a commercial artist in Canada, followed by service in the war, Billy Butlin began a hoopla stall in the twenties. Year by year, he slowly built up a business in amusement parks, with haunted houses, helter-skelters, hoopla and merry-go-rounds. His big breakthrough was getting the European license for selling the new Dodgem cars. Then, having spotted the miserable time spent by many families in seaside landladies' accommodation, he opened his first camp at Skegness in Lincolnshire in 1936. Holiday camps of different kinds, often run for employees of a particular company, had existed before. But Butlin's Skegness was a hugely ambitious undertaking, with a swimming pool, theatre, cinema, many amusements and, crucially, crash facilities, so that parents could spend time together without their children. A second camp followed at Clacton two years later, and after handing over facilities to the armed forces, he ended the war with five large holiday camps just at the opportune moment. A tough little man, who had carried a cutthroat razor in his top pocket while building his fairground and exhibition business before the war, and who boasted to friends that his aims were money, power and women, Butlin had a shrewd understanding of what war-weary people wanted. He offered colour, fun, warm cabins, surprisingly good food, and almost constant activities, from dancing to the famous knobbly knees and glamorous granny competitions. Butlin, who was a millionaire within two years of the war ending, 
and who, after various financial crises, would be knighted and receive the Queen at one of his camps, was targeting the middle classes as much as the better-off workers. Italian opera, Shakespearean productions, radio stars, politicians, the odd archbishop and sporting heroes were all invited to the camps, and came. There was nothing naff about the camps, certainly in the forties and fifties, their heyday. Indeed, for a lot of people, they were pricey. After the wartime experiences of everyone mucking in together, the morning-to-bedtime activities provided by the redcoats, with their relentless jollity, seems to have been welcomed. Butlin had his fingers burned with an ill-timed attempt to expand into the American market with a Caribbean camp in 1948, and the mass overseas tourism which began in the 60s would end the glory days of his camps and their rivals. But for millions of British people, they would remain a synonym for summer holiday well into the age of Benidorm. And if cheap air travel falls victim to oil price rises or worries about global warming, the age of the domestic holiday camp may yet return. Outside the annual holiday, the traditional spectator sports made a swift post-war return. Football had been badly hit during the war years, not just because so many players were away in the forces, leaving veterans the field to themselves, but because the England Football League had been suspended and the country simply divided into north and south. New rules meant that league players had numbered shirts, could earn up to £12 a week, and that games could be played until they produced a result. Though in 1946 this meant Doncaster Rovers and Stockport County playing into the darkness after 203 minutes without a goal, there being no floodlighting then. The great soccer teams were soon back in action, to capacity crowds. Stanley Matthews, the Stoke barber's son, who was a pre-war legend, was back amazing crowds for Blackpool after the war. In 1953, when Matthews was the ripe old age of 38, some 10 million people watched him in the first televised cup final. By 1948 to 9, there were more than 40 million attendances at football matches and a general assumption that British football was the finest there was, something seemingly confirmed the previous May when Britain had played a team grandly, if inaccurately, named the rest of the world. They comprised Danes, Swedes, a Frenchman, Italian, Swiss, Czech, Belgian, Dutchman and Irishman, and thrashed them 6-1. That illusion would be dispelled before long, but in other ways, too, this was a golden age of football. The stands were open and smelly, the crowds unprotected, and the greatest stars of the post-war era still to come. But football was relatively uncorrupt, was still essentially about local teams supported in their immediate area, and was not dirty on the pitch. Throughout his long career, Matthews, for instance, was never cautioned, never booked. Another famous footballer of the time was Arsenal's Dennis Compton. It is just that he was still more famous for cricket, which became massively popular again after the war. Some three million people watched the tests against South Africa in 1947, and Compton's performance then and in the following years produced a rush of English pride and mass enthusiasm. The cricket writer Neville Cardus found him the image of sanity and health after the war. There was no rationing in an innings by Compton. In cricket, as in football, many of the players were the stars of pre-war days who had served as PT instructors or otherwise kept their hand in during hostilities. But with the Yorkshire batsman Len Hutton also back in legendary form at the Oval, cricket achieved a level of national symbolism that it has never reached since not even in the heyday of Botham or the summer of 2005. Again, as with football, the stars of post-war cricket could not expect to become rich on the proceeds. Hutton, a builder's son, who first made his name beating teams of public schoolboys on behalf of London Council schools, became England's first professional captain of the century in 1952, and the dishevelled Compton, whose father had worked in a chemist's shop, first came into decent money as the face of Brill Cream adverts. Greyhound racing, using electric hares developed before the war, was a prime working-class focus for betting. The sport had begun in Britain in 1926 at Manchester's Bellevue Stadium and spread quickly across the country. Unlike horse racing, it was something that millions of people in the industrial towns could go and watch near home, and many of the most famous dogs were bred and trained by people using a narrow back garden or local parks. The greyhound tracks were also used for speedway, the 500cc brakeless motorcycle racing which had arrived from Australia in the 20s and which went through a big expansion after the war. 
So too, more bizarrely, did Bicycle Speedway, with men and boys pedalling furiously around bomb sites throughout Britain. The courses marked out with painted lines on grass or house bricks. Cities such as Coventry, Birmingham, and London played test matches against each other, and there was even an international, England against Holland, in 1950. Eventually, rebuilding removed the courses, and the craze gently subsided. But the main leisure activities of the time were more traditional. Britain was then as now gardening obsessed. Pottering around in a shed was how many a British male liked to spend any spare time. Not in the pub. There was a post-war boom in attending football and cricket matches. Cinema, though, was for everyone. And to give some idea of its popularity, it is worth recording that in 1947 there were around ten times as many visits to a film as there are today, with a much smaller population. At the post-war peak, there were 4,600 cinemas in the country, each showing news films alongside the main and second features. The British film industry. Which extended far further than Ealing was turning out a steady flow of wartime adventures, history films, adaptations of Dickens, and romances, but was not then or ever really able to stave off the power and glamour of Hollywood. Did it matter, darling? Theatre after the war. After the war, you would not have bet on British theatre, an old national glory, surviving as something that mattered. Though television had been suspended during hostilities, cutting out dramatically during a Walt Disney cartoon, and was only reintroduced in 1946 to a small audience around London, it was clearly going to present a challenge. In 1950, there were still only 350,000 television licenses, but the technology and appetite were clearly apparent. The first television sitcom, Pinwright's Progress, had begun as early as November 1946. The first BBC attempts to produce television plays were stilted and badly lit, but had already proved popular. As we have seen, cinema audiences had shot up during the war years, and there was, however, briefly a thriving British film industry. For the big stars, the money was in film, and if at all possible, in Hollywood. Worse, British theatre before and during the war had produced little new writing of major significance. It had become an embattled heritage theatre, with astounding Shakespearean performances, plus musical reviews and other light fare to keep people's spirits up. There had been nothing like the energy and ingenuity of the filmmakers as they responded to big social and moral questions thrown up by the war and its aftermath. For these failures, history has alighted on a single scapegoat. His name was Hugh Beaumont, but his friends and his many enemies called him Binky. His company, H.M. Tennant Limited, was responsible for a seemingly endless run of musicals and popular hits. Later on, after the theatrical revolution of the late fifties and sixties, Beaumont, who had been born in Cardiff in 1908, would be reviled as everything that was worst about the old ways—a conventional queenie czar of the West End, relying on drawing-room comedies, lavish sets, and star names to keep the audiences happy. He would be regularly accused of running a gay mafia for friends such as John Gielgud. Much of this is unfair. Beaumont was not so timid. He was ready sometimes to take risks, such as with the controversial 1949 production of Tennessee Williams' powerful *A Streetcar Named Desire*, starring Vivian Leigh. It was denounced by the Public Morality Council as thoroughly indecent. We should be ashamed that children and servants are allowed to sit in the theatre and see it. The Arts Council suddenly withdrew its support, and planned royal visits were cancelled after an outcry about American sewage. And sex obsession, in beautifully produced, no expense spared productions such as Oklahoma, West Side Story, and My Fair Lady, and gripping dramas such as Rattigan's The Winslow Boy, Beaumont offered the middle classes of London and the home counties an escape from daily life and dreary politics. He made a great deal of money for his theatres and backers, and would carry on doing so for many years to come. He was the nearest equivalent to the huge popular successes of Andrew Lloyd Webber's musicals in the final decades of the century, offensive to the intellectual elite, perhaps, but keeping the West End solvent and busy. Nor was he any kind of philistine. Perhaps his closest acting collaborator was the great John Gielgud, and he was responsible for some still famous productions of Shakespeare. Beaumont stood in the middle of a glossy circle of talent. Much of it gay, which celebrated luxury and wit at a time when the country seemed short of both. The most successful of his playwright collaborators was Terence Rattigan, 
born in 1911 to a diplomat father who was sacked from the Foreign Office after an affair with a Romanian princess. Rattigan had made his name before the war with French Without Tears, but his most famous and well-made plays came in the 40s and 50s. Sharp, poignant studies of upper-middle-class life, such as The Browning Version, The Deep Blue Sea and Separate Tables. Homosexuality is a hidden theme, necessarily so at the time, but the veneer of clipped, upper-crust politeness made Rattigan an easy target when the national mood turned. In a notorious preface in 1953, he seemed to confirm all his critics' case by explaining the importance to him of Aunt Edna, the audience member always inside his brain when writing, a nice, respectable, middle-class, middle-aged maiden lady with time on her hands and the money to help her pass it. Rattigan, like Beaumont, would fall suddenly and dramatically out of fashion. The days would soon pass when entertaining Aunt Edna rather than heaving verbal bricks at her was what ambitious playwrights wanted to do. Among Beaumont's other key collaborators was Cecil Beaton, the photographer and designer. Born in 1904, Beaton first made his name by photographing the bright young things of the 20s. He would survive to take pictures of the rock stars of the 60s and even punks of the 70s, having a long career as a royal portrait photographer in between. His stage work exemplified the ooh-ah effect that Beaumont loved, exotic and witty designs for the pinched post-war public. His film designs would later win him a pair of Oscars. An older star in the same firmament was Ivor Novello, born in 1893, who would die six years after the war's end of a heart attack, and who had been badly shaken by a short prison sentence in Wormwood Scrubs for a wartime motoring offence. Novello's career had included composing, notably the patriotic First World War song Keep the Home Fires Burning, and a stream of musicals, ending with King's Rhapsody in 1949 and Gaze the Word in 1951. Strikingly good-looking, Novello's homosexuality was carefully hidden from his legion of female fans. At his funeral, women outnumbered men mourners by around 50 to 1. But the best known of this group of gay stars was Noel Coward, who was 46 by the time the war ended. By now he was acknowledged as the master, after a stream of hits such as Cavalcade and Private Lives made him one of the world's highest paid writers. Though he had self-consciously posed as a decadent, drug-taking dandy in the twenties, virtually inventing high English camp, and was briefly taken up by the intelligentsia, Coward became increasingly mainstream. His patriotism was not ironic, and he bitterly regretted the passing of British imperial status. His wartime films were morale boosters. In Which We Serve, the 1942 film about Lord Louis Manbatten's destroyer HMS Kelly, and This Happy Breed helped consolidate his status as greatest living Englishman, and although the immediate post-war years were a time of relative failure, his plays and influence would continue through the 50s and 60s. Coward showed that the British could be light, witty, amoral, and yet also patriotic. He expanded the limits of the accepted national character. For this, and his devastating wit, he survived even when the kitchen sink realism, which he loathed, took over the stage. Though the 40s and 50s saw the beginning of a new theatre, it is salutary to remember that these decades were just as coloured by people who had been born in Victorian or Edwardian times and carried a whiff of Oscar Wilde's London around with them. Novello, Beaumont, Coward, Beaton, Rattigan were all gay, mainstream, middle-class entertainers of one kind or another, highly talented and overtly patriotic. Just because they would be then pushed aside by a new generation, the self-publicising angry young men and the producers who brought talents like Samuel Beckett and Bertolt Brecht to the British stage, does not mean their years in the sun never happened. The wit and wistfulness of the Binky Beaumont era was another British way of facing a future of grim and guttural questions. Beyond the theatre proper, it was a tone repeated in the hugely popular novels of Nancy Mitford and the arch-television performances of Joyce Grenfell. The other dominant figure on the British post-war stage was William Shakespeare. Rarely, since the days of the earlier Elizabeth, had so much Shakespeare been performed To such excited adulation. Contemporary audiences thought Laurence Olivier, Ralph Richardson and John Gielgud were the equal of any Shakespearean actors ever. They may well have been right. The Old Vic Theatre at London's South Bank 
seen as an embryo national theatre, was turning out a stream of Shakespeare. The young Peter Hall, looking back at the early fifties, reflected that by the time I was twenty-one, I had seen the entire canon, some of it many times, and you could not do that now. There was talk of a bardic traffic jam in the West End. After the wartime patriotism of Olivier's film version of Henry V, and with a dearth of strong new writing, it was perhaps inevitable that so many directors and actors would turn to England's greatest writer as well as to other established classics. For a literate, culture-starved public, there was nothing to complain about in that. Shakespeare probes as deeply into the human state as anyone before or since. Audiences would reel from the latest Olivier performance as emptied and wrung out as it is possible to be. The same goes for the few other great dramatists regularly performed at the time, Chekhov and the Greek tragedians. Yet the question would not go away: Was there nothing more contemporary, nothing more political to be said on the stage? To ask whether the theatre matters is, in one sense, a meaningless question. If it gives people a unique insight into their situation, even if it only entertains them, then surely that is enough. Yet in other times and places, the theatre has aspired to do more, to function as a social and political force. Despite censorship, it had shaken up pre-revolutionary Russia. It had mattered in Weimar Germany, post-war Paris, and would again in the United States, as the Americans experienced anti-communist hysteria and the moral impact of the world's first mass consumer society. So why not Britain? One historian of the theatre, reflecting on the early fifties, found the London stage completely indifferent to contemporary events. The heavy costs of a rearmament program necessitated by the Korean War, the inflationary pressures that this produced in a still war-weakened country, the continued shortages caused by rationing, the dramatic impact of the welfare state, the manufacture of the first British nuclear bomb—all failed to impinge upon the West End stage. Anyone who cares about live theatre hopes that the unique coming together of certain actors, words, and audiences will produce a transformation of some kind. This was still just the pre-television age. The possibility of British theatre meaning more than a pleasant or stirring night out was still open. End of disc four.